There are a number of uh, questions, Timothy, which I would like to ask you with regard to AIDS and what it means to carry AIDS. And if I may, I would like to um, start off by, if you could tell me in fairly general terms um, a little bit um, about your background up until the time that you knew you were carrying the AIDS virus. <clears throat> well, generally, I was uh, born in this country, in uh, New York City. Uh, I studied at uh, parochial schools in New York City. Had a fairly normal childhood. Uh, went into the service when I was 20, spent a year in Vietnam. Uh, came back from Vietnam, had a, uh, started working, uh, met someone and moved to the Boston area uh, where I was trained as a respiratory therapist, uh, began working at a large Boston hospital. And uh, in 1984, I was diagnosed with pulmonary tuberculosis uh, and was being treated for that. Uh, treatment seemed uh, unsuccessful or very slow. I was very slow to respond to treatment. And in uh, 1985, <clears throat> while at a clinic receiving an injection, there was a needle stick accident. And I sat down with my physicians and the nurse who was uh, involved in this needle stick accident, and we decided that I would test for the uh, HIV. Uh, Antibody. What is a needle stick accident? What, what are you? What, what do you mean? I, uh, as treatment for my tuberculosis, I was receiving injections, mm -hmm. and a nurse gave me the injection. And when she was putting the cap back on the needle, she stuck her finger. Oh. So I had used the hypodermic needle. In essence, I had been I had used the needle, and then she was stuck with it. So there was concern, because uh, yes. that is one of the major. Uh, ways that the virus can be transmitted is, is through the use of needles. So we decided, and I was in agreement, and I was tested, and tested positive. Uh, and at what that point, at that point, uh, I had known about the test. I had, uh, I had been counseled on the pros and cons of taking it, and had decided up to that point uh, that I didn't want to uh, have the test. But at that point, I felt it necessary. Now, what are one or two of the pros and the cons for you at that time with regard to taking the test? What is what's the, what? One would have thought that the pros would have been the dominant, or not? Well, no. I uh, consulted with my physician, yes. my primary physician, mm. and uh, it was uh, his opinion mm. that if the test was available for me, if I chose to take it. Mm. I spoke to people here at the AIDS Action Committee that are involved in education, mm -hmm. and uh, what I was told was what their concern was: what will I do with the information when mm -hmm. I get it? Good if question. I'm positive or negative, what will I do with it? What will how will it affect my life and my right. psyche? Uh, and all it meant to me that uh, if I was positive, I would continue doing the things that I would that I was doing, mm -hmm. uh, and they were. Uh, living my life within safe and rational sexual guidelines, 
and uh, staying as healthy as possible. Uh, and if I tested negative, I would also be doing the exact same things. Yes. Uh, so there seemed like no sense in taking mm. the test uh, up until that point mm. where it involved this other person directly uh, yes. who happened to be uh, considering having a child also. Now from the time, Timothy, that you um, decided to take the test and to the time of getting the result, how was that period for you, having made, a, having made a decision on behalf of somebody else? One word, anxiety. Uh, and what kind of period of time were you waiting? Four weeks. Four weeks. Because they did uh, two, uh, two tests. The first came negative. There's two different uh, tests that can be done. The first one came negative, uh, came positive, and then just to make sure that, that it was not a false positive, they did another test. So it was a matter of four weeks that I waited. Yeah. And what were the circumstances in which you got the result of the test after this four-week period? Did, was it a letter which arrived at your home? Did you go to the oh, hospital? Oh, no. I have a, a very close contact, mm. uh, personal relationship with my physician because I had worked with him. Mm as a respiratory therapist before any of this began. So he, uh, on one of my routine visits, he called me into his office and we sat down and uh, talked about it. Right. It, um, in um, your knowledge or contact with other people carrying uh, AIDS, um, are they informed as well as what you appear to have been? I mean, you had a personal contact with somebody who could... Oh, I, don't, I, I think uh, some others are... Uh, if they're seen, at, it's, I think it depends on where they're seen. If mm. they're seen at a, a center, or an alternative center for testing where there's counseling available, that always seems to... When I get back mm. positive feedback on that, but uh, sometimes there are situations where people are tested at a hospital, and it's a large hospital, and it's like a, the next day or something, after mm. the result, the nurse will just come in and put a sign up on the door that you're like, uh, precautions there, so there's some insensitivity along mm. the way that I've heard of. Yes. And what, what at the time, think when the doctor um, told you what you had most anxiety about, how was, you at that, how was it at that time for you, when you actually, actually knew what you feared? Well, actually, when he told me, the anxiety seemed to wane. Now mm. I knew what was a distinct possibility. Yes. Uh, from the way I had chose to live my life, mm. and knowing different risk categories, I, uh, I was somewhat convinced that I would be positive. Yes. Uh, but there was this little part of me that said, well, maybe it won't be. Maybe I slipped through somehow. Yes. Uh, but there was, in fact, there was some relief that now I knew mm. where I stood, and yeah. that anxiety actually uh, decreased uh, once I was told. And what were the next steps for you? You, 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 you had the, how, how old were you at this time? Uh, twenty, uh, twenty. I wish thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 you had this knowledge, and then you left the uh, uh, 
doctor's room, reception. What were the next steps for you? What kind of impact was it then beginning to have on your life? Your friends, family, what, what was it? Did you have to tell other people, etc., etc.? Well, I thought of who I might tell. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I do have a life partner. Yes. So I chose to tell him. Yes. Uh, which I thought was an important thing to do. Can you and say a little bit about about the telling of him and how you handled that, how he handled that? Um, well, he knew he knew that it was this was not a surprise. He knew mm. that it was coming because of this needle stick accident, mm. uh, and he he like myself. We had talked about it previously, and we we said, you know, the chances are, you know, that you can come up positive, and we. I guess the greatest stress was in whether we should both be tested. Mm. If I'm going to be tested, you should be tested, but uh, that's not the route we we chose. Uh, that was not the difficult part because we're very close, mm. and uh, and whatever whatever the results were, we had pledged to. To stick by each other, mm. no matter what the consequences, you know, mm. no matter what happened. So it's, I mean, it shows quite some strength of commitment right. from, from both uh, of you. My biggest concern uh, with it was the confidentiality, that now I was in a category of HIV positive. And what would that mean for the workplace, insurance, and benefits? Yeah. How would all of that change? And and. And a paramount consideration was, how do I treat this? What can I do for this now that I know I'm positive? And how is this affecting the t tuberculosis? Yes. Uh, and what were your responses to how to deal with this, both at the personal health level and at the level of communication with others? To educate myself. And what were those, what kind of steps? Uh, reading scientific journals, communicating more with my physician and getting specialists that he knew to give me information on what the possibilities were. Uh, contact, contacting the AIDS Action Committee on a, a, a casual level, not quite as involved mm -hmm. as I am now, uh, and attending every uh, seminar and health conference and alternative uh, therapies conference that were uh, made available through the AIDS Action Committee to is get as much knowledge about it as I could. Now, isn't there some risk that in acquiring so much knowledge that it can in fact, at least for some people, actually intensify the anxieties and the fears through knowing too much about. Oh, I don't think so. I think no. if the information is uh, presented properly by responsible mm. people, and uh, so would you say then, generally speaking, if somebody knows that they are HIV positive, it's useful and perhaps important for that person to actually go out and be well-informed. Absolutely. In being well-informed, was it, was it the knowledge? Was it the, the contact with concerned people? Was it the contact with other people with AIDS? What, 
what, what, why do you say, why are you so positive about the knowledge and the seminars and the workshops and the, the, the scientific journals? Well, simply because it made me feel that I was not alone in this mm. and that I was not uh, uh, isolated, that there were other people there that I could talk to and share how they felt about mm. it and how they reacted. And, uh, and sort of strength in numbers, that yes. we were all going yeah. through this together, yes. and that I was not alone. Uh, and then, what about, um, and, I mean, you had a special situation in which you told um, a, a partner with a long-term commitment, but what about in communicating with other parents, brothers, sisters, employers? close friends who may not be so understanding? What, 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 what sort of decisions did you make with those people? Uh, only the closest of friends that I inform uh, mm. that I was HIV uh, positive. I felt no other necessity with the exception of health care providers mm -hmm. uh, that may be drawing my blood or a dentist, uh, which that situation didn't arise, but these are just examples where I yeah. felt someone was going to draw, in fact, a, a situation happened where a lab tech was going to draw some bloods and mm -hmm. she didn't have on gloves, and I just mentioned it to her, that she should be wearing gloves, that mm. I had blood precautions, mm. and let her take it from there, but, uh, and closest of friends, but otherwise I didn't feel it necessary to be advertising or telling anyone this. No, right. So, in, in other words, one uses one's discretion very carefully with regard to who actually is informed. Yes. Has there been for you any kind of um, feeling of um, um, back, backlash or a difficult situation for you with regard to being positive? With regards to being um, antibody positive, yes. I didn't feel any discrimination or uh, any backlash in any way. Later on, when we get to my di diagnosis as AIDS, yes. uh, then that changes a little bit. Yes. Uh, but at that point, no, I felt nothing. And so, through through this through this period of time, that was. How would you describe it? Reasonably comfortable? What, what, what would you say, a general overall period of time, this overall period? The general sense of both From the time health, of testing. well-being, psychological health, having, knowing that you are positive. But from that period of time? That period of time, uh, things went on quite uh, as much as they uh, always had, mm. quite normally. Uh, it was another piece of information I had in this uh, puzzle yes. that I had with my health and uh, tuberculosis. Uh, but basically, it went uh, it went on normally, uh, life as usual, with the exception that I knew and uh, that I had been infected with the virus yes. and that there were possibilities down the road and mm. that I should do all that was possible to uh, to optimize yes. my situation. Mm. Was the optimizing of it primarily through knowledge? I mean, what about diet, exercise? 
Well, that's when I say knowledge is I get the knowledge and then I have to, I mean, I can sit there with all the knowledge and do nothing, Mm. sit in the easy chair and watch cartoons and drink beer. Mm. I could, but when I got the knowledge, I would have to put it into effect and that diet changed, Mm. exercise, uh, I looked into some of the holistic therapies Mm. and I was talking about meditation and and different, Mm. uh, different approaches. And, and in this how long was it in the period of time before being diagnosed as positive until knowing that you had AIDS? One year and two months. One year and two months. And what were the circumstances which led up to the knowledge that you had AIDS? November of 1986, Mm. uh, I had increasing difficult, a major change took place. I mean, I could no longer use the bicycle at the gym as long as I could. It was getting a little short of breath. Uh, The apartment that I live in is one long flight of stairs up, and I noticed I had to stop halfway up the stairs. Uh, So on a visit, to my uh, pulmonary physician, I mentioned this to him. And on the spot immediately, he sent me to x-ray, and uh, x-ray was clear, seemed normal. Uh, But prophylactically, he started me on an antibiotic for a pneumonia, a general broad-based antibiotic. Uh, Three to four days later, there was no improvement. He took another chest film, and there were bilateral infiltrates on the entire lung. He immediately admitted me, uh, performed a bronchoscopy. What's that? Uh, put placing a tube through the mouth or nose down into the lung and getting tissue and washings of the secretions that are in the lung. Admitted me to the hospital and uh, the next day the results were back that it was uh, these cultures that he got from the lung were positive for a pneumocystis pneumonia. And I was started on Bactrim. And again, he and my psychiatrist at this point, who I've been seeing for two years on a weekly basis, came to my room and told me what I knew. I knew PCP is the definite for diagnosis of AIDS. and for me, there was relief in that. I am, I am one of few people who says that, and sometimes I'm misunderstood when I'm in support groups. And, and so, I had been in a battle for three years, it seemed to me, with the TB and the tuberculosis. Is it tuberculosis, and now it's positive, and what came first, the chicken or the egg, or did the AIDS cause the TB? And there was lots of confusion and uncertainty. Then I knew when they told me. Now I knew what it was. Mm. And uh, so at first, where many have panic, and uh, there was a sigh of relief that now I knew what it was and what exactly I was dealing with. Yes. Uh, Now that didn't last too long, (laughs) but immediately that's how it felt. Right. And and as you say, the responses to it and the reactions, I mean, must must vary um, enormously. And I'm, I'm sitting and wondering 
why relief again? It's not what one expects to hear. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it's quite difficult to explain mm. how I come with that, come mm. up with that. Mm. Uh, but many people, this, uh, this comes on mm. quicker for them. And uh, I had been just going through it for so long and now had known for a year that I was positive and uh, would it be many years before there were any other manifestations of the disease and uh, and believing maybe that it wasn't, that it, it could be just like a, a rare form of the TB or an atypical type of pneumonia yes. and uh, uh, did, did the um, the psychiatrist and the doctor you said you said told you in your room was that in the hospital or at home? The hospital. In the hospital, and then you had to go back home and tell your partner. Is that was? It? Oh, he came to the hospital. Yes. Then, yeah. So we were all, we were all knowledgeable of what a, a, an HIV positive mm. gay man in his mid thirties who comes down with pneumonia. Yes. What? That's that rings a bell for everyone that I know, the yes. circles that I travel sure. in. So when I called Joe and I said, I think you better come in and we can talk and he said, It's it and I said, It's it And he we had we were we were quite well prepared. Yes. Uh, where some, some people aren't and there's like many different stories, so I don't like oh, mine sure. to sound like uh, uh, the norm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Right. But it, it it seems you from what you say, that with the psychiatrist, doctor, and partner, you've had unusually supportive people. Oh, absolutely. Plus the AIDS Action Organization. Did the new knowledge on your partner make any change in the relationship, both at the personal level, physical level? Oh, did yes, it change? Did. Yeah, he's like. Uh, taken on an extra caring. This is like a little more like I'm sick or I'm the patient and he'll yes. he'll, he'll tolerate a little more. <laughs> Some of my antics, he'll tolerate a little right. more. I can get away with a little bit. <laughs> uh, and at this point with AIDS how much in your daily life was did that dominate the whole day in terms of thought and perceptions? Were you able, did, were you, did you find yourself naturally putting it aside? What, what, what? Well, my first approach since I, I got out of the hospital, mm. uh, the beginning of December, mm. I uh, I dove right into Christmas shopping as an escape. Yes, I did nothing but shop all day and not think about it. Just take whatever me medications I had to take mm. and get into the holiday season yeah. as an escape and go to concerts and shows. And, uh, uh, so I didn't think very much. Mm. Then, uh, on January 1st, I started on AZT, mm. which I had to take every four hours. And it seemed at that point that the taking of this medication every four hours 
was like a reminder. So every four hours of every single day to include four o'clock, four a.m., when I wake from my sleep to take these pills, you have AIDS. And it was an issue that I'm still working on with my psychiatrist. Mm. The little box that I take out of my pocket, which is always with me, says, you have AIDS, every time I take it out. And hopefully they'll come up with something where I'll only have to do it like once a day. <laughs> Yeah. But that effect, that was a very a simple thing like taking mm -hmm. my medication had a very strong effect January when I started with it. And since you know, three months or more has gone by, how has the adjustment been in, in the three months? Still, I mean, are you still taking it with such frequency? Yes. That's the Every four hours since last January you've been the taking... Clock, yes. I'm not a very good house guest when the alarm goes <laughs> off at 4 a.m. Sure. <laughs> and um, what about work, financial support, oh, simply, living, et cetera? I, I worked for the uh, Boston University Medical Center mm -hmm. and uh, uh, April of 1984, I was placed on workman's comp for TB. Working as a respiratory therapist, mm. many people test positive. Some people get the disease and are treated, and it's it's uh, taken care of very quickly. Mm. Uh, so I have been on workman's comp compensation since then, living at a salary range of the 1984 level. Mm. So there like been no raises, and so I've been on a fixed income mm. uh, since that point. And uh, at times it's been difficult. Mm. Uh, and I've accrued some bills along the way, and just yesterday I filed for bankruptcy in federal court, so I cleared the books. Yes. And from here on in, just have, you know, just basic type of uh, financial commitments, but clear all the other stuff out of the way. Fine. And um, in the present time, in terms of the present and the future, how's your relationship? What's your general relationship to life, your daily life, and living one day at a time? One day all at a time. And all that's implied. Uh, that's, uh, that's the phrase that does the trick for me, one day at a time. And uh, I think, I hate to like take the credit or brag, that I'm a little better at it than, say, members of my support group, mm -hmm. because for seven years uh, I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And uh, after Vietnam I had a problem mm -hmm. with alcohol and substance abuse. And I have not had beverage alcohol in seven years, and that's how I did it, basically, mm -hmm. through the philosophy of AA yeah, as a day at a time. You went right through the whole program? Right, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, so I carried a lot of that into mm, my next disease. I mean, it's from alcoholism to my tuberculosis to AIDS that each one is a little battle in like in a mm. big overall war. Yes, uh, bigger than the Vietnam War. So, years. absolutely. Mm. I'm seeing more friends go with AIDS than I ever saw friends go in Vietnam. That's a strong statement. How is the relationship 
um, how should I say, amongst the AIDS community. Would you say, speak like that? How are people, you with each other? People with AIDS? Yes. I don't think any of us would be doing quite as well as we've been able to mm. without each other. Yeah. Uh, In spite of the loss, losses right. that take place. And, uh, and we give each other strength. And, mm. and we, it's amazing how we can put our differences aside when this happens. There are people, I mean, just on the social level, there are people in my support group that there was a little angst between us before yes. this, but that's like, like, it's like so background, so secondary now that we can just like put that aside and, and mm. help each other and be there for each other and love, love, yes. love each other. So in, 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 in spite of all the life risk, there is some other pervasive element which is happening in terms of love, friendship, empathy, support, hope, hope, and, and, and with your commitment in terms of the, the personal relationship and with the, the action um, su support groups. With regard to uh, AIDS itself, does it ever seem like there's some kind of other message in it, in terms of this? Oh. For me, it's, it's becoming evident that I am being transformed yes. through AIDS. Uh, I'm seeing aspects of my own spirituality mm. that I've never seen before. Uh, it's transforming me in my relationship to other human beings. Mm. And most important, it's transforming me uh, in a new understanding of what we are as, as inhabitants of this planet. And that this disease is not in this one little corner, mm. or one little problem for one little subgroup. This is a planetary problem, yes. and all humanity is affected by this. And like I get, I can put difficulties aside in my little support group, as inhabitants of the planet, we may, and we will, not may, we will have to put other things aside mm. to deal with this yeah. as brothers and sisters together. And I think there's, there's a great transformation that's taken place in my, in my life through this. Yeah. And that continues, and it continues a day at a time. And, uh, it's wonderful and uh, a, pri a privilege to hear because everything which we explore and discuss at the at the center at Barry um, is also what you're communicating directly to us here and now, and it seems that the AIDS is has has and is serving for you some kind of catalyst for a, a very expensive awareness. And I also like to. Were there any other questions that were coming to mind for anyone as Timothy and I were? Speaking together. Well, I'd like to express great appreciation, Timothy, and for the time and uh, gratitude for you for what you have shared with us. 
and I would like the opportunity in the future to um, play the tape to friends, for people to listen to, to increase the awareness and, and knowledge and just find ways and means that we can be supportive and, uh, and continue together the journey. Right. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I do plan to visit the center in Cambridge, and maybe I'll get to take a trip out to Barry. And uh, you'd be very welcome. Well, very welcome. Wonderful. Actually, <laughs> speaking at the center in Cambridge on Wednesday evening. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Is that an invitation to me? It is. Please of course, it is. Oh, I would love. What time? Um, Eight fifteen. Start. I'll be there. Good. We'll see you there, Tim. Okay. <laughs> right. uh, so you're going to yeah, work with more?
I would like to begin our conversation together by asking you, Laurie, how you became involved in working with people with AIDS. Quite simply, I saw an ad in the newspaper mm -hmm. looking for social workers to do this work, and I was looking for a different kind of job and a different kind of um, focus in my life. I also had a friend who was a volunteer here, was part of what they call the buddy system for a number of years, and knew about the organization through that individual. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went through the interviewing process, realized it was something I really wanted to do. And it was something that uh, I would feel personally fulfilled by, and uh, that I could offer some real skills to it, and that's, yes. that's how I became involved. Mm -hmm. and, and when was this? That was last July. In last July, right. Mm -hmm. And once getting involved, what did that um, entail for you? What, what, what did it mean? What does it mean to be involved with people with AIDS? It means a lot of different things and a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there was your basic um, on-the-job training period of time where mm -hmm. I learned what facts I needed to know to, to impart information, you know, accurate information to folks I'd work with mm -hmm. um, about the services available to them in the, in the area. Um, and that was the easiest part, I'd say, learning that kind of information. Mm -hmm. And that's an ongoing process, of course. There's always more information to be learned. And, yeah. uh, but, and in my position, what I primarily do is try to coordinate services for each client I work with to make sure they get what they need. Mm -hmm. And some people need more help in that regard than others. Timothy doesn't need a heck of a lot of help in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> He's very yeah. self-sufficient, yeah. um, which is great. And some people aren't so self-sufficient and don't have supports, and yes. they utilize me as a support, and mm. I try to organize other supports for them, mm. um, and enlist the support of other people in their lives. Right. Um, so, initial, after your training, um, and with regard to the support, does it actually mean you go to the homes of people with AIDS, or is it to the hospitals, or both? What? Um, I or, see people... Or they come here? Or? It depends on what they're able to do. The whole point is to make it possible for them to interact with us, and mm. if they want to. And some people can come here, and some people are not well enough to come here, and I see them at home. Other people, when they initiate contact, they're in the hospital, and so I see them in the hospital. Right. Whatever. And in um, making uh, the contact um, with people with, with AIDS, what kind of contact and communication do you, do you have? What sort? What are fairly typical things that come up for people with AIDS that they want to talk with you about? What what, what comes to mind? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll kind of say that it really varies depending mm. on the individual. Um, some people are very focused on one specific need. Some people come to us and they're mostly concerned with their finances. They're just very, very nervous about finances. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to talk about anything else. They don't want to talk about how it feels. They don't want support mm -hmm. yet, emotional support yet, through any kinds of groups. Mm -hmm. um, what I find is that the way that people have always tended to deal with crises in their lives mm -hmm. is how they continue to deal with this one, at least initially. And so the people that don't tend to mm. want to reach out for support and don't already have many supports in their lives mm. are more reluctant to reach out now mm. and they're very scared and it and that sometimes changes and it takes time for yeah. that to change so some people come with a real fixed agenda they just want certain supports other people um, just want information about uh, 
what to expect, you know, what is AIDS, what's going to happen now, or what is ARC, what's going to happen now, what to expect, and, and just one emotional support and factual information. Mm. Um, some people are alone and, and need help um, enlisting the forces of the hospital where they're at to get them what they need, discharge planning, the support they'll need when I get home. It really pretty much varies depending on the individual and how sick they mm. are and, and how they tend to do with things like this in their life. Now, suppose someone, you, you have contact with somebody, this person has AIDS, and to use the first type of person, the person just wants to talk about finance. Mm -hmm. You can see, sense quite clearly that there's one heck of a lot of else which is going up behind mm -hmm. this emotion, fear, anxiety, etc. Mm -hmm. What, how do you relate, if at all, to that? Do you just deal with the face mm -hmm. request, shall we say, mm -hmm. or do you take it further? Yeah. What, what, what? Um, <clears throat> once again, it pretty much varies. Mm -hmm. my, my hope is to offer what's needed and what the person's mm -hmm. able to accept at the time. Yes. And so what I try to do is let the person, it, what, what I primarily try to do is establish enough rapport and trust so the mm -hmm. person eventually becomes more comfortable with sharing other mm -hmm. things that come up for them. Um, and sometimes even within the course of the first interview, even if the initial um, interest on their part was about accessing practical support, like uh, financial support. Um, sometimes even within the course of that first interview, they'll begin talking about some other things that they may be interested in. Yes. One of the things I do is go over a whole list of services and supports that are available through us and that we can make referrals to. Mm. And uh, sometimes in going over that list, things come up for people. They'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, that might be a good idea. Maybe, mm. maybe I would be interested in thinking about um, a group living environment, or maybe I would be interested in a support group, or I'll have to mm. think about it, I'll get back to you. But sometimes um, other things do, do emerge mm. in the um, course. I mean, because uh, Timothy has related to us very uh, clearly the value of support group mm -hmm. and being informed and mm -hmm. making contact and so forth. But I can imagine there must be quite a few personality types who are very insular, very withdrawn, almost antisocial, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. um, and who don't respond very easily to the idea of having to go out and share what's happening for them. Oh yes, that's true. And what, what, what kind of responses is called for from you? I'll tell you, seriously that my attitude or my, my orientation mm -hmm. is to support the person where they are right now and not to try to force them mm -hmm. into wanting something that I think they need mm -hmm. or uh, being more open than they really are. Mm -hmm. So I try mm -hmm. to be as accepting of mm -hmm. where they are now as possible yes. while letting them know that I'm there for them and yes. that we're there for them if they're open to that mm -hmm. at some point whether it's later in this hour or in next month. Um, people who are insular, I mean, I, who, who tend to be real isolated in their lives, mm. I will sometimes express my concern mm. and, and my, make subtle suggestions as to the fact that in my experience I've seen that some other people have found it really a relief to talk to somebody else about how they're feeling. Yes. Um, we have a, there are a variety of ways to offer somebody support who tends to be isolated. People who are too scared to go into a group setting, for example, mm maybe one-on-one -on -one contact with someone else who's diagnosed. And we do have a networking kind of, uh, we call it our networking service, where we can hook someone up with one other person who's also diagnosed, mm. just to talk about what it's like. 
We so. also have the buddy system where it's someone who probably isn't diagnosed but is volunteering their time to mm. just be kind of, to kind of befriend the person on an yeah. ongoing basis. So yes. I make suggestions sometimes right. if they seem open. So in that respect, that, that, that having diversity of possibilities oh, yes. is obviously very, very important for it's very a person important. with AIDS as yeah. much as uh, for the organization can offer of course. Make these suggestions. Of course, because that way we can address a variety of types of needs mm. and uh, of individuals. Because not everybody has the same um, openness to different kinds of services and mm. the same needs, even. And so it's very important to have a variety of services available, even in terms of support systems. Yes. Um, and uh, alongside that, I mean, this is a difficult question, but. Would you say, in your experience of working with people with AIDS, that there is a predominant type of person with AIDS, terms of, I don't like the term so much, but class, background, education? In no yeah. way. In no way. No. It's, no. It's, so it's across the right board. Across the board. It's every person in the world you could imagine is, I've probably seen that sort of person as a yes. client. Right. Yes. And in bringing people together, I mean, for example, you, you, you make a contact, um, you establish rapport and trust, the person is receptive to being in an AIDS support group. What might be the form of that group? That the, the people, that is the AIDS person, and how would you call your role? Counselor? Um, client advocate. Client advocate. Yeah. Um, meeting together, what's the typical thing which takes place within that group situation? I think I'm confused about what you're meaning by group, because when I think of a support group, I'm thinking of the support groups we offer, which do not consist at all of someone in my role, they consist solely of people um, who have AIDS or ARC that are meeting together to share ah, experiences. So, comparative to an AA program, in fact, in terms of... With a facilitator. With a facilitator. Yeah, a group with a facilitator that can give some guy, a trained yes. psychologist, social worker yeah. person who can give some structure to the group and, yes. and keep things safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. keep right. that safe space. Yeah. yeah. So there, there is the, the role of the facilitator with the people, the members. What kind of work typically takes place within that? support system. You can answer that much better than I. Hopefully support. Uh, and it's it's just a broad general issue discussion group mm. uh, where we all get a chance to like uh, check in on where we are mm. and uh, lend support to others who may be sicker or uh, just share our experiences on how we dealt with telling our mother or mm. uh, a problem we're having with the landlady or just just general all-around support and uh, and would, would would there be um, out of the um, immediate support group meeting um, Contact and socializing afterwards. I mean, does friendship oh, yes. right out? So, social bonding yes, takes place, and uh, there's people get together to go out after group or mm. share little projects together. Or I just uh, 
thinking of a, a group of men in my support mm. group who are renting a little cottage for the summer by the ocean to be together and uh, supportive of each other and uh, so all sorts of bonding goes on in the group and uh, and we talk about our advocates and what they're doing for us and not doing. <laughs> Anything you want to mention? Um, and in, in your uh, day, how much of it includes contact, say, on the one-to-one -one basis? How much of it includes um, fundraising, um, contact with other people who are client advocates? What's, what's a kind of typical day for you? A typical day is having the phone glued to my ear and being on the phone yeah. all day long yes. with clients and with doctors or nurses and other social workers. Um, but to be more specific, um, our organization is has um, diversified to the point where, or rather I should say, specialized its mm. little functions to the point where we have individuals to do different kinds of work. And so mm. fundraising is not anywhere in my role. Right. Either we have a person or two people that work on that all full time. Um, it's not something I'm involved in or even yeah. would care to be involved in. Um, each advocate who works here, and there are six of us, uh, takes a turn every every week being on call, taking every phone call that comes into the organization regarding someone wanting services or having a question about the organization and how they would fit in getting services. Mm. Um, when I am on call, I take calls from many people. I, I got a call today from another from a hospital outside of Boston from someone wanting to start a, um, a brainstorming kind of group with someone from our organization and other professionals in their geographic area to expand public awareness of AIDS in their area and how to provide better services in the hospital. and. Um, we get other calls from, uh, from say, a doctor downstate who wants to know, uh, is it okay to reveal someone's diagnosis to somebody, and of course it's not. Um, we get a lot of calls from different sorts of people with questions, but mm. I'd say that most of my day, and I'd say most of my colleagues' yeah. days, revolve around mm. coordinating services for our clients. Mm. Um, we each work with about 60 clients, and we spend time on the phone with them as individuals and just checking in and saying hi and how are things and do you need anything and mm -hmm. um, and if there's an, a specific problem or crisis trying to deal with that. Yes, right. Yeah. And I interact with my colleagues with, uh, I share an office with another advocate and we bounce things off each other kind of continuously I'd say mm -hmm. during the day. So the actual field of work is quite diverse insofar as you're dealing with, um, should we say, Professionals like medical professionals yes. who contact with you requiring information and knowledge. Yes. Um, contact with each other as well as with people with uh, AIDS. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, is, are there any kind of um, training programs which take place for the non-professional mm -hmm. whereby people can come to a reasonably clear understanding about AIDS and communication with people with AIDS. Is there any of that kind of work underway here in Boston? Um, I don't know that I can speak to Boston in general. I can say that I think our organization does the most, I think, I, unless you think of something else. We have a variety of, of training sessions that take place and mm -hmm. orientation sessions that take place. It's mostly couched in the context of people who might want to volunteer here um, because through us people can get involved in a lot of different ways, I think. Um, in, in working with people either directly who have AIDS or ARC or um, 
helping in more like clerical supportive roles or whatever. Yes. Um, we have training sessions for people who would like to be public speakers about AIDS. That's for clients. Um, we have uh, volunteer orientation sessions. We have client services training sessions for people who might want to volunteer to provide services directly to clients of the organization. Um, now, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So th there's a great deal of, shall we say, outreaching which is taking place. Yes. Yes. By urgent necessity. Yes. And um, one of the questions which comes to my mind is, what about with um, the churches and the kind of views, sometimes moralistic, say the least, which gets get generated? What kind of contact is there? What kind of contact is there? Yes, well, we interestingly enough have a nun on staff who is uh, one of the advocates. And, yes, and uh, she knows a lot more about that than I. I try to ignore it as much as possible because it's very upsetting and frustrating. Yeah. But uh, I would like to add something to that. The, the uh, AIDS Action Committee has a uh, subcommittee, the Pastoral Concerns Subcommittee. Mm. Uh, which represents, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, all religions, yes, all Catholic. major denominations, and minor, everybody. Yes. And uh, I just recently attended a retreat at a uh, Franciscan monastery uh, with eight, uh, ten people with AIDS and four people from the Pastoral Concerns Committee, and it was uplifting and it was wonderful. They're definitely They're planning people. another. Yeah. So yeah, there's, good. it's not... Let me just say, quick, it's, it's not the establishment church that I grew up with no. that I'm experiencing through the pastoral concern mm. subcommittee, but they are doing a, a fabulous job, yes. and there's a spiritual element there that mm. some of us maybe put aside along the way and yes. stuff, and it's rekindling in me mm. now, but uh, that input is here, and, yes. and they're doing their outreaches in their own way. Definitely, and I don't. I do think that's a. I, I my impression is that's a very select group of people, mm. and it's not the norm, in some, um, in some, uh, uh, religious circles to be as open-minded and as supportive as they. I had mm. a client who's a Jehovah's Witness, and I couldn't find one person. In the, the community, in that community, in the area, to come support that person in the hospital, because it was sinful to be sick with what he had. Um, there, I mean, I know other clients who've had, you know, less than supportive experiences. Thank goodness we do have a pastoral concern subcommittee whereby we can offer that kind of spiritual support. Yes. However, it is an issue, and it does have something to do with uh, public attitude and opinion, mm. um, with the moralizing that does take place, and and the. Uh, the um, judgmental um, mm. attitude of some I mean, people. It seems with uh, such people that there's a confusion insofar as that there is a health issue and then somehow or other these kind of religious moralistic overtones get mixed in with basically a health issue. Yes, that's true. And some can't, don't seem to be able to separate the two. I think that uh, one reason why our, the uh, educational aspect of this organization mm. is so incredibly busy mm. and expanding by leaps and bounds is that there is such a need for clear information to go out to people because I think when people have, the general public has more information 
maybe they'll be able to focus more on the facts about the disease and less about their fantasies yeah. about and the myths that they are mm. have always held about uh, about people who are considered to be high risk group yeah. uh, risk groups for this disease. And and of course, contact and communication can contribute enormously to dispelling mm -hmm. many many of the myths and. I imagine as people like Timothy and others just state the clear facts very well, and we can, which we, we can hear, it makes it so much more uh, understandable, personable, and not something... Something in the distance, in the distance. yes, less abstract but more hmm. real. It's hard to reject, like, harder to reject a real individual, live individual standing in front of you sharing their reality and their yes. life than just hearing about something on TV or the radio or reading yeah. something in the newspaper. Is your sense that there is uh, a gradual and noticeable shift toward an understanding of the situation rather than uh, a moralizing about it? I think in this area there's a shift towards the... I don't really know. My impression is that what I read in the newspaper, what I hear from other people, the kinds of calls we get, I think there's some shift, but it seems it seems to me that any shift is always accompanied by another round of hysteria um, in the yeah. public. Yeah, we get. Can you take one around? What is a round of hysteria? Uh, for example, um, I'm thinking of our hotline, which receives lots and lots of calls every day, and uh, from people, primarily, increasingly, numbers of heterosexuals calling regarding. Um, concern about transfusions, and um, there was recently an announcement that uh, I think it was the CDC recommended that every or somebody, some major organization, medical organization in the country recommended that everybody who had received multiple transfusions between 1978 and 85 or something get tested, and uh, everybody who received you know, more than one transfusion, or maybe one transfusion, I think, tried to call us immediately regarding, oh my God, does that, I probably have AIDS. Um, so every time some, some new information comes out, there is always a, a, some major number of people that misinterprets it, gains fear from it rather than clarification, and so yeah. that's what I mean by rounds of hysteria. With people that um, come and say who are positive and then go from being confirmed as having AIDS. Is the relationship that which you have, does it change very much to either? Well, let me clarify that we do not get real involved with people who simply test positive. No. There are, you know, thousands and thousands and mm. thousands of people who have tested positive and will test positive someday if they mm. do it. Um, our services are primarily for people who are diagnosed with AIDS and ARC. However, I certainly talk on the phone to people yes. who have tested positive, and I counsel them <coughs> regarding um, what it really means, what does it mean to them to have tested positive, mm. does this really change their life in any way, what, um, going over their fears and fantasies and the reality of what mm. it really does and doesn't mean. So I don't really have an ongoing relationship with, with many people who, who then transfer no. from positivity to a diagnosis. Is, is the, the kind of figures which are um, put out, does it appear to be reasonably uh, accurate that, for example, 10 to 15 percent of those who are diagnosed as positive go on to have AIDS? Is, is there any well, is there ground there? 
this figure? What? I heard a different figure than that, and I don't know what the real figure is, but yeah. I think it's very clear that the vast majority of people that test positive mm. to this point have not gone on to ARC or AIDS. It's some, what I've heard is, and you can tell me if you've heard differently, I've, I've read, I get articles in my mailbox every day, I've read statistics like uh, between 30 and 40 percent of people that test positive have gone on at this point mm. um, to become diagnosed. Is that That's closer to the facts that 15. I'm hearing from yeah. uh, Dr. Hirsch at the Mass General, yeah. who's one of the major researchers mm. in this country. Yeah. Uh, somewhere in that... 30-35 percent. Yeah. yeah. Which means that someone who tests positive does not really need to spend their life at this point focusing on becoming sick unless they become sick. Mm. Right. Because they're not sick yet, and therefore it's it's not a part of their life. It doesn't need to be a major part of their, their life, life because there's a great chance that they will not get anything, ever yes. exhibit symptoms. Mm. But there's a chance they will, and that's the ambiguity of that is very hard yes. to live with. Right, and d this ambiguity is um, do what, is there any kind of figures or knowledge that the way that one lives increases one's chances or decreases? Does, it, is, does there seem to be a correlation between one's attitude and awarenesses and My exercise? My understanding that, that there certainly is, that the healthier someone is and the more positive their, their approach to their, their attitude, the, mm. the healthier mentally and physically someone maintains themselves, the less, the less their immune system is at less risk of, of being mm. attacked um, by by the virus. That's that's my understanding, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I see even my clients who are already diagnosed, people who, who maintain yes. a lifestyle that's that's good for them physically yes. and mentally, they do much better. Yes. You know, they do better. This is not always true of course, but but across the board it, it yes. seems to make a real difference. It makes a difference in someone's quality of life. Yes. Which is kind of the point. Mm. And and of course it makes a difference um, both from being positive to um, actually converting to an actual diagnosis. Yes, yeah. right, because that attitude would carry yes. through yes. through there as well. Hopefully true. Mm. Yeah. And, and it seems that the general figures seem to be, is it some, I, I don't know if it's just speculative or authenticated, that's the word, but some two million people with diagnosed positive, is that correct? I don't is actually know. I do not know. I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know. It's certainly possible it's that many. Are you talking about worldwide? This, this country, yeah. I've, I've in Newsweek magazine last week, in fact. Yeah, where they, exactly they whose figures we're using, yeah, they vary, but uh, that, seem, that, it could be possible. that seems in the ballpark. Yeah, I've heard 1.5 1, 1. million already that are uh, HIV positive. It's definitely a pervasive Right. I think, definitely. Given the way it's transmitted and the way that no one knew about it for so long, it's certainly not inconceivable. And what what about um, taking the step, say, from the personal and the immediate level to the political level? How much awareness and support and research um, is coming from government? How much? How much? Are people able to exert pressure on government to wake up to the reality of what is happening? What? Do you have thoughts about that? Well, my thought. <laughs> Which one? Sorry. Uh, my thought on it, and there was uh, just recently an article in the New York Times that uh, it's being predicted that 
the AIDS health crisis will be a major issue in the upcoming election uh, because it's it's not as abstract to people as the power politics of the Mideast or it's not quite as understandable as South Africa. It's right here. It's right in that operating room when I go for a transfusion. It's right down the block. It's in my church. And it will be a major issue. And, uh, and it was something that you brought up about the politics and morality and how the two are conflicting. Uh, and I won't mention any names no, where that's happening, but uh, there's the moral agenda uh, interfering with a health care, a major catastrophic health care issue, and that will have to be ironed out, and it looks as though the arena for, for that mm. to be solved will be this upcoming election. Uh, and it will reach a pinnacle, I think, at that mm. point, a major issue in this election. And it's definitely something that's important, and, even yeah. within the smaller context of the state and the city. Mm -hmm. it's an issue. In, in, in other words, when something of this order becomes um, in the arena of political decision-making, it's going to require from people that they're going to hopefully think it through more carefully and, there, and therefore be able to see well, what's what. Because Particularly um, here in um, the States, there's a kind of religious fundamentalism which we hear about in Britain, which seems to run in the face of everyday life. It's, and uh, I wonder what kind of shifts will in fact be made. I'll just say that I don't know what shifts will be made. Mm. I know what my hopes are. Yes. I know what I'm concerned about. Mm. Um, I certainly still see lots of articles and headlines in the newspaper about people talking about the morality and about abstinence being the only way and about the whole thing should be considered only in the context of marriage. And, and yes. uh, I mean, there's a lot of moralizing very definitely still mm. taking place. I don't know if that's going to change. I don't know. I doubt that it will change if someone just like our current president also comes into the presidency. I know there are enough upcoming um, people who want to be candidates who mm. don't seem to have that attitude, mm. I hope to God that they um, prevail. Yes, right. But certainly, I can't. I don't feel I can count on that. No. So, so um, one aspect of it is a change in public attitude. I mean, in terms of the political level, and, and I, I think you're quite right. It will become a very major issue. It, it, it is. has to. But, but the, the other aspect of it too is in terms of what governments are doing. A major area of the debate in England is the kind of money that government is spending to inform people and what kind of information they're giving to people. And does either the money and the information seem adequate enough? Yeah. It seems to me to be increasing. Mm. It is increasing consistently, but it's by no means adequate. Mm. Um, the fact that we have to get most of our funding through fundraising as opposed to through direct mm. state or federal funding is, is one sign of that.
the fact that the fact that the EZT crisis is happening, where the government has not made sure that or we don't have socialized medicine here, but I mean the fact that people cannot count on getting adequate health care, or count on getting adequate home health care, count on getting the medicine they need if they don't have the money. I mean, there's not enough, but no. it's increased. It has increased yes. consistently. What's what's your sense of it? What I see happening is a splintering effect, and what may what may have to happen is that there may have to be more a centralized approach, mm. as if we were actually in a war, and we had one commander in chief of the forces, and one headquarters instead of the CDC says this, and the National Institute of Health says this, and Jerry Falwell says that, and what we need a centralized. Uh, plan of attack uh, and a combinate funding. Funding can be very splintered right. and who's getting what research and uh, how much goes to treatment, how much that balance of treatment and research and right. education. And, uh, so maybe even a, uh, a just a new commission or a new department to mm. deal directly with this issue uh, because of the enormity that they may need just uh, one particular department to deal with it. Yes, yes. yes. It, I mean, it seems the, the process of waking up at the political level often seems to drag behind what's actually happening. Yes. And when we're speaking of one and a half million plus people positive, you know, it seems that the government seems to be that it seems as though that uh, waiting six years for the President of the United States to say the word AIDS in a press conference is a bit much. Is that right? That's a bit much. That's a little scary. So it, it, at, at many levels, it's like many of our major institutions of uh, the political institution, and the religious institutions, and the general social institutions, all need a tremendous amount of uh, information and knowledge and awakening. An incentive. An incentive. <laughs> I don't know what that would take, but yes, I agree. Well, thank you both very much for giving us the time. Very, very much appreciated and very, very valuable and helpful. And we've also been provided with some um, brochures and uh, leaflets. Good. And, and after this, we'll, it will generate just more interest in our locality in the West Country. Good, I hope so. Yes, thank you. Okay, thank you. thanks.